Thursday before last, when I was here, we were talking about uh, right understanding, right view, um, and we spoke about the uh, the three characteristics at some length. And last last Thursday, Jordan, what, what, where did you talk about them? We began talking about right view and how right view um, and mundane right view can help kinds of understandings and, and perspectives that come from that yeah. can directly feed back into one's practice and, to your practice. and improve meditation, virtue, and such. Okay. <coughs> so that's where we are in this part. What we've done so far is to talk about the first three from the Four Noble Truths. We're now talking about the Eightfold Path, which is the Fourth Noble Truth. <coughs> and we're, we've begun talking about what right understanding is. Uh, and boy, I, I sure hope by next time I'm here that we can have a projector with our little slides that, so you can see the Eightfold Path. And so uh, for those of you, some of you I know are very familiar with uh, these things, but others I know you're, you're struggling. Eightfold Path, what is that? You're talking about right understanding, well, <clears throat> what are the other stuff, and so forth. So, um, since we don't have the projector yet, the eight are uh, right understanding. I like to, call it, to refer to these, these first two. They're translations from another ancient language, right? I like to call them right understanding and right intention. But other people call, call them by other name, right view, right motivation, things like that. These are the first two parts of the Eightfold Path. And they are the parts that have to do primarily with intellectual understanding and support the other six, which are all about different kinds of practice. Even that, not quite true. The second of these, the one I call right intention, also it's the transition from just the intellectual understanding to the practice, and it involves certain practices as well. We'll probably get to that in you know, a couple of weeks or so, or I don't, or, or maybe maybe not, maybe longer, because the kind of discussion we're having, you know, it, it's it's an intellectual processing thing, and really, right understanding is understanding the Dharma in its entirety. So we might spend a while talking about what right understanding is. But anyway, right understanding and right intention. As a right intention is. It involves some practice, but it kind of bridges the intellectual understanding and the practice. That's the first two. They're called the pillar of wisdom. The next three are the pillar of virtue. They're right speech, right action, and right livelihood. And then the last three are the pillar of meditation. And they consist of uh, right effort, right concentration, and right mindfulness. Okay, so uh, we're still up here trying to get a kind of an overview of the Dharma as a whole, which is right understanding. Okay, um, when when we refer to this as right view, we're bringing it out of just a 
conceptual understanding to how it actually applies to us when we're in life, living our lives. And you'll notice that every part of this discussion, when we talk about uh, the three characteristics, and the first characteristic is impermanence, understanding that characteristic intellectually is one thing, but seeing the truth of it in the world and having it affect how you react to things uh, is another. Uh, likewise, the characteristic of, of self. Just, just understanding in principle uh, why it is that the Buddha taught that the self we think we are doesn't really exist is one thing. But how you apply that in the way that you view what happens to you and you view your own behavior and reactions to things is that's such an important dimension of it. And that's why often when somebody is introducing people to the Eightfold Path, they take these these two, right, right understanding and right intention, wisdom part, and they'll put them at the end of the process because they belong both at the beginning and at the end. In the beginning, you study and think and listen and you intellectually understand it. The whole end of the process is when they become a deep, there's a deep, you've acquired a deep intuitive understanding of these things that profoundly alters the way you perceive things and the way you function in the world. So that's my summary of where we are. We're talking about right understanding. Uh, we're talking about the first noble truth. So right now, before we get into anything new, I just invite any comments or questions about what's already been discussed uh, in the last two weeks. Yes. Is there um, significance to the order? Like you just said that the first of the three characteristics is impermanence. Is there a significance to the order that they're traditionally listed? Or is there a traditional order? Or are they kind of different? Uh, well, they are usually taught in this order for very practical reasons in terms of teaching. Um, because in order to talk about in order to talk about uh, virtue, right speech, right, right action, right livelihood in a meaningful way, this has to be supported by an understanding of some of these principles. Otherwise, right speech, right action, right livelihood becomes just a list of rules to follow. And that's absolutely what they are not, you know, not what they're meant to be. And it is, it's, a, it's a common misunderstanding, even the way that the Eightfold Path is traditionally taught. Um, it makes sense to provide the the uh, intellectual foundation and then move into virtue and then move into instruction for practice. So that's that's really what's behind the traditional way of teaching it. At the same time, and I'm glad you asked that because it reminds me to mention this, this eightfold path is not meant to be followed sequentially or one part at a time. Uh, and it doesn't produce the desired result. You practice all eight parts simultaneously, 
and they support each other, they reinforce each other, and practicing in that way is the most rapid way to uh, to reach the goals to achieve the fruits that that the Sapefold Path has to offer. What about with the three characteristics, like impermanence, no self-suffering? The three traditional order with those. Um, usually, we discuss impermanence and emptiness first because they make it easier to understand what this no self business is all about. And then the, the suffering part of it, in a sense, we've already taught that first because we taught when we were teaching the first three noble truths uh, of suffering and the cause of suffering and the end of suffering. You know, we've already discussed a lot about suffering. But when we're teaching them as the three characteristics, we're we're teaching them in the context uh, of the first two of impermanence and no self. Uh, that clinging to things that are impermanent and empty and thinking that you are uh, some kind of a separate self when you're not is absolutely guaranteed to bring unlimited suffering. So we're looking at we're we're looking at it we're looking at it in a new context. So you have to teach the, uh, the first two characteristics before the third uh, when you're teaching them as a group so that it becomes really clear uh, how suffering fits in. So these, these are important things when you get to the point of teaching or trying to explain these things to somebody else, which uh, I do want you to have a clear enough and simple enough understanding of them that you can't do that. So anyway, are there any questions or or comments? <clears throat> so when we when we speak of the three characteristics Everybody knows what we're talking about. Now, there's probably a few new people here that don't know. There's probably some people who have been coming regularly for quite a while that are not sure. (laughs) (laughs) What's this three characteristics thing? Three characteristics of what? (laughs) I'd like somebody to... That's a question for you. I'd like somebody to tell me three characteristics of what? What are we talking about? Yeah. Three characteristics of of insight? Well, actually, uh, that's not a bad answer because when we, when we, when we're talking about insight, we're talking about insight into these three characteristics. And so th- this is this is how we manage to become transformed, is when we have insight into uh, impermanence, we have insight into emptiness, we have insight into no self, and we have insight into a way that clinging to those clinging clinging to things that uh, are not the way they appear to be cause of suffering. What I was looking, what I'm looking for you to tell me is 
what is impermanence a characteristic of? And what is no self a characteristic of? Everything. Excellent. That's the answer. That's a characteristic of everything. Characteristic of the universe, of life, of your experience, of everything. And, and that's what makes them so very, very important. Uh, when we talk about the, the first three truths before we got to the Eightfold Path, we saw that desire and aversion is the immediate cause of our craving, but desire and aversion in turn are the result of uh, delusion, ignorance. Well, delusion, what delusion about, what is the delusion? The delusion is, uh, the ignorance is not understanding that everything is, uh, that these three characteristics describe everything. The delusion is thinking that things are in some other way than these three characteristics. And the three characteristics, everybody needs (coughs) In order for us to talk meaningfully, we, we have to use the same words. So the first one is called impermanence. The second one is called no-self. And the third one is called suffering. So everything is characterized by impermanence. Everything is characterized by there being no self to anything, including you. And suffering is a characteristic of subjective experience when we don't realize that that things are impermanent and selfless. I mentioned emptiness on a number of occasions because after the Buddha defined these three characteristics of everything, then somebody decided that it made sense to reinterpret both impermanence and no self in terms of a single property. That there is something, there is a way that impermanence and no self come together as a single descriptor of reality, which is emptiness. And so, uh, and that was very useful. That was a great, wonderful idea, and it has carried forward since then. And so now I can use it. You know, when you understand what impermanence really means, and when you understand what no self really means, then you've understood emptiness. So, but that's the three characteristics. Yeah. So if suffering is a characteristic of our experience when fettered by delusion and ignorance, how is it as fundamental as the other two? Because the other two, an awakened being would still see impermanence and emptiness and no self, but an awakened being wouldn't necessarily then see suffering in that way. They're not. They're, it, uh, or suffering is not as fundamental as the other two. Suffering is derived from the first two. And so it is, it is a characteristic of everything to do with sentient beings' experience, of an ordinary sentient being's experience. But the fact is, too, that awakening... Uh, the third truth is about the permanent cessation of suffering. So, 
in, in a sense, we're fibbing a little bit when we say there are the three characteristics of everything. There are the three characteristics of everything except awakened beings who experience permanent cessation of suffering. <laughs> but we have to forgive these little. <laughs> it's all these words and ideas are just they're just a framework that helps us get to the most important level of understanding that we're after. And so when they when everything doesn't fit quite nicely into the little boxes that we would like them to, we have to just accept that. Suffering is not as fundamental. It is derived from the other two. That's a good question. Mm-hmm. Well, let me just summarize, because we talked about this two weeks ago. What does impermanence mean? It does not mean that things pass away. It means much more than that. Indeed, everything does pass away. It means there is only change. And here, once again, we're dealing with some of the limitations that come translating from one language to another. So we translate the word anicca to impermanence. If we don't explain it a little bit, we might miss the real meaning. Um, If we translate it as changing, then we could say everything is changed. And now we're closer to the truth. Everything is constantly changing. And, you know, but there's still there's still a limitation here that gets in our way. Everything is constantly changing. So we're still preceding a world made out of things, but they're things that are changing. And that's still not quite what it means. Because the truth is, there are no things. There is only change. There is only process. Reality is thingless. All thingness is a projection of your mind on an ongoing process. The same way that you can look at a stream and you can see the little eddies that form and disappear, your mind makes an eddy into a thing. In itself, from its own side, there is only the river, only the water, only the movement. There is no such thing as an eddy, but your mind makes a thing from it. And that's easy to understand. It's a little bit harder to realize that everything that you've ever encountered is in the same way. Your mind is taking a reality that is only process, and it is imposing thingness on it, so that instead of seeing a world of process, you see a world made up of all kinds of separate individual things. So that's what impermanence means. Impermanence means there are no things, there is only process. Can I interject something really quick? Yes. I just keep thinking of Sarat, that's that pointillist painter. Mm-hmm. And um, I was just wondering like, if he had an experience of emptiness or something, and that's how he got into painting. <laughs> <laughs> so anyways, just throwing that up. <laughs> That's a very interesting thing thing to to pursue. Uh, (laughs) So, so if you're good with that summary of what what we say, speaking of the characteristic uh, of impermanence, is that reality is only process. This is one little corner of it. Does it, it doesn't, I mean, I don't think it matters, but 
it seems like there are things, abstract things, like gravity or 2 plus 2 equals 4, which have some kind of permanence mm-hmm. that we don't ascribe to the rest of our experience. And so there are things that are permanent, right? Well, there, there are, well, this is a whole interesting area that we could get into. A circle, for example. A circle is actually something that only exists in the human mind. I, I seriously doubt that a dog has the concept of a circle. And in the universe at large, there is, there are no circles. There are circular things. But there's absolutely nothing that you can find in this universe that is a perfect circle. So, now, and and this, I'm I'm not trying to, this is something that could lead to a tremendous, deep, and productive discussion. But I'd, I'd like to just give you a way of thinking about it that lets us carry on. Okay. And, can you see? Can you see what I just said to you? That the circle, as an abstract concept, is something that we can find many approximations of in the universe, but we can never find an actual circle. Where does it exist? In the mind, right? So now we've gotten to exactly where we need to be. Is there are no things in this universe? The things that we perceive only exist in the mind. And whatever it is that we impose our perception of thingness on, it is not really the same as that. It's not just that it's not identical to that. It's that the thing image in our mind doesn't exist anywhere else. Doesn't exist anywhere else. And if we were to look closely enough at that thing, we'd find all these different ways that it doesn't match up to the thing in our mind. So, yeah, there's abstract notions are actually, if anything, they're a good illustration of this. What always confuses me about this is that things change at different rates. For this example, this floor changes very slowly. Mm -hmm. It's sort of useful to think of it as a thing, or mountain ranges are changing, but really slowly. So, when we say things, are we basically just talking about things that change so slowly? Yeah. Yes, and that's absolutely true. All kinds of different things change at different rates. What's interesting to notice about that is that from our human perspective,